Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. My guest today is Steve Fazari, professor of economics at Washington University in St. Louis. Steve, welcome to Econ Talk. Nice to be with you, Russ. Steve, what is the Keynesian uh, theory of the business cycle? Why, in the view of, of Keynes and those who uh, follow his, his viewpoint, why do capitalist economies uh, slump and boom? The most direct determinant of output, production, employment, in the Keynesian view is the amount of money people are spending in the economy, what economists call aggregate demand. So the more spending that's going on and the more businesses are selling, the more they're selling, the more people they employ and the more more they produce. There are lots of nuances, but at the most basic level, I think that's the message of Keynesian macroeconomics. And so any short, any change in aggregate demand, uh, particularly a reduction, then would cause a recession? Yeah, that's right. So uh, the problems we're facing right now, uh, the most direct cause here would be a reduction in the amount of money people were spending on new houses that caused uh, less demand for housing and so fewer workers in the in the housing market. Also, the concern that uh, people were borrowing lots of money against their houses to finance their consumption spending. So if they don't use their houses as a piggy bank anymore, they won't spend as much and, and as a result... Uh, Businesses that produce consumption goods won't sell as much, and they won't hire as many workers. Let's. Is there a, a distinction here between um, short run and and long run? Let me let me um, let me give you a scenario that I've often uh, commented on that always drives me nuts, and maybe okay. you have a different viewpoint than I do on it. A lot of people will argue around this time of year, not this year particularly, but in, especially in years past, that. We need a good holiday buying season to keep the economy going because consumers are such an important part of the economy. And I I have two thoughts on that, non-Keynesian thoughts. One is if we all decided to work half as much because we wanted to spend more time uh, with our family or volunteering to help old people or whatever good cause we were passionate about and we decided to be less materialistic, that that would be a good outcome, although in the short run, the adjustment to that new economy would be very painful if it happened quickly. Overnight, we all decided to spend half as much money and work half as hard. But that in that there's no inherent value to consumer spending. That's my first point. My second point is on that standard holiday spending theme is if people don't consume, aren't they going to save? And if they save, aren't they going to invest? And isn't that spending no different than consumer spending? So why does it matter that uh, consumers spend? Well, let me uh, comment on both of those. So I actually have some sympathy to the idea that there's no inherent value to consumption, and we might, as a society, be better off if we were less materialistic and focused on deeper kinds of things in life. So there's some deep uh, philosophical, psychological issues with respect to that view. And measured, measured GDP would be lower, but measured real GDP, GDP real whatever you want to call it, utility, happiness, joy, satisfaction, could be dramatically higher if we chose that. Right. So if we had some kind of coordinated policy whereby everybody says we're going to work half as much, we're going to spend half as much, we're going to produce half as much, uh, and and enjoy more leisure and more time with our families, uh, maybe we'd be better off as a society. But when you put it that way, I think it kind of shows the difficulty of reaching such a a happy outcome in an uncoordinated economy. Any individual, group of individuals that had been spending a lot decide to cut back, they may be better off. They may see it as, themselves as being better off, but the businesses that were selling them goods and services are not selling as much as they were before, and as a result, uh, they're going to have some problems, and the question is, how do you get out of that problem? So think about a, a family that had been eating out regularly and says, this is crazy, we're driving ourselves nuts, we're going to start to cook at home. Uh, they may be perfectly happy doing that, but the restaurants they were going to are going to see their uh, revenues fall, their sales fall, and they're going to have a, a harder time uh, generating the business that they're used to. So the question is, what kind of adjustment uh, will the economy go through during that period of time? And of course, for, of course, for our discussion, we can touch on the, on the short run and the long run 
issues that are that 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 problem poses. Yeah, that's why I said if, you know if it happened overnight, that restaurant's expectations wouldn't be met. It would have to lay off workers. Um, and that would cause some painful adjustments. So it would ripple through the economy. But if over ten years we decided to slowly reduce our material spending and slowly reduce our amount of work, I think that would be a different story. And similarly, even in the abrupt decision to work less and spend less, uh, after a number of years, I think we would adjust, but it would be painful in between. Yeah, I think that's right. That there, that it's certainly going to be painful when it initially happens. Uh, probably uh, the more subtle part of this is what happens over the longer term. How do these adjustments actually take place? I mean, in the broad sense, everybody agreed, like I said, in a coordinated way to work less and to consume less and decided that was we were all going to be better off as a result, uh, that, that I think that could happen, or I think that could be uh, beneficial for the economy. Uh, but in practice, uh, that will not be a coordinated decision. And, in, and what we're facing right now, in reality, with the, um, with the problems the U.S. economy is going through at the moment, is a decision to consume less, not because people felt like they should take leisure, but because they were financially overstretched, and, and as a result... Uh, Lots of businesses are selling less, and then they're laying workers off, and this is a pretty unhappy situation where we end up with people who want to work and, and want to be earning money uh, in the market economy not being able to do so. Let's go back to the second part of that sure. uh, fable, though, of, of this uh, more spiritual, less material world. Right. If, uh, if people spent less and saved more, uh, is that harmful for the economy? I've never understood this distinction between uh, consumption and savings, surely savings and therefore investment are the engine of future growth. So savings is good. So why is it that savings is bad in that the economy doesn't get stimulated by aggregate demand, given that there's just going to be more spending by businesses in the form of investment? I've never understood that. Is Am I missing something? Uh, I, I think you are missing something, but let me... Uh... Don't, don't be too hard on yourself. I think much of the economics profession, maybe most of the economics profession, is missing something in terms of this link. This is really one of the most subtle issues in, in changing macroeconomics. And uh, I can put up a, a paper or a link to a paper that discusses this issue for your listeners. The, uh, the problem is this. So think about, uh, again, uh, the family that's eating out in the restaurant. Uh, so the family decides we're not going to eat out so much. They might do it specifically because they say we should be saving more. So we're going to cut back on our restaurant spending, yeah. uh, and we're going to save it's not more. This Maybe material spiritual uh, trade-off. Just that we want to say, we want to eat more in the future. We're going to eat yeah, less. Yeah, right. Tonight. Or we want to go. We want to go to college, or we want yeah. to buy a car, or we sure. want to do, take a vacation five years from now. There's any any number of things. But actually, there's a direct quote from Keynes's general theory it's in, the, in chapter 16. Uh, I can only paraphrase it now, but it's something like this. A decision uh, not to have dinner today is not necessarily a decision to have dinner tomorrow or to buy a pair of boots tomorrow or to do any specific thing in the future. A decision not to have dinner today is a decision maybe to consume some unspecified article in the future. Now, that gets a little abstract, but let me be a little more concrete. So go back to our example. The family decides to to, uh, save more of its income and, and not eat out as much. But notice what happens immediately when they do that. The restaurant is not selling as many restaurant meals. So what happens to the restaurant? Well, they find their income has fallen. Uh, So the decision by our family to not eat out as often forces a, a reduction in income, indeed destroys the income of the restaurant. Now, well, how does the restaurant adjust to this? Uh, one way they might adjust to it, in the simplest way, and for analytical purposes, is to suppose they keep doing everything they, the, the same as they did before. So uh, the, the workers continue to get paid. They continue to consume. The income of the restaurant is lower, but the spending of the restaurant and the restaurant employees stays the same. Well, what does that mean? That means that the saving of the restaurant group has to go down. So, yes, the family that decides to eat at home rather than eating out is saving more, but by exactly the same amount, the restaurant owner and its employees are saving less. And why? Because that decision not to spend destroyed income. So the initial reaction to lower consumption and higher saving by one group in the economy is less income uh, and therefore less saving by another group in the economy, so they just cancel out. And this is, I think, the deep intuition 
of what Keynesians call the paradox of thrift. The idea that one, when one person increases their saving, it doesn't increase saving in the economy as a whole. And uh, the reason for that is because higher saving is less spending, and less spending it leads to lower income. Now, I know that's a little bit subtle, uh, but it is, I think, a fairly standard perspective. So for, for years, uh, as we've worked through Keynesian textbooks and the idea that lower aggregate demand could lead to lower output, behind that uh, result is this intuition uh, that when people save more, there is not actually more saving in aggregate. When, when individuals decide to save more, there is indeed not more saving available well, for the economy as a whole. I think the response to that from us non-Keynesians would be that a couple things. One, that happens all the time in the economy. Sure. It's, not, it's not the case that uh, en masse everyone decides to, say, stop eating out and eating in. But every once in a while there are such um, social uh, – I don't know what you call them, a fad, a movement, a cultural response. Um, sometime in the last 20 years, I don't remember when it started, but there was this idea of, uh, I don't know, staying closer to the hearth and, and people started entertaining more in, in their homes and cooking more and getting into healthy food and all kinds of home activity like that. And that didn't cause a massive dislocation of the economy. It caused things to readjust. Sure, some restaurants went out of business. Other activities expanded. Groceries had more uh, fresh food uh, available and, and some pre-cooked stuff. So those people, uh, those in, those organizations like grocery stores expanded and, and did more stuff. And wages of, of restaurant people may have gone down. Profits of restaurants went down. Other people's profits went up. That kind of creative destruction is going on all the time in a market economy, it's not coordinated. The prices are adjusting to steer the resources to their highest valued uses, responding to people's preferences, et cetera. So my first thought would be, well, that, that's all normal and fine and, and isn't disruptive and doesn't cause any problems. And in, in fact, it gives people more of what they want if, if, that's, if they desire to eat, uh, eat out less and eat in more. Um, when I think of the paradox of thrift... Uh, is that really what people are thinking about the story you told? Or are you giving us, as you said, a more subtle version? Well, I think uh, I'm going to give a couple of responses to what you've just said. Uh, let me just directly answer the question you at, at, at the end of your comment, which is uh, what are people thinking about when they think about the paradox of thrift? I think the reason the paradox of thrift is so hard to understand is when we individually save more, we see that our our bank accounts rise, our stock portfolio increases, we put more money into some kind of financial investment most likely, and we see that increase in our, uh, the assets on our balance sheet. What we do not see is the income that we've destroyed elsewhere in the economy by not spending. What we used to be, income we used to be creating through our spending um, is no longer there, and we don't see that. And, and so it, it, it's, from our point of view, well, the money's still there, it's just going into a different place. But uh, we don't see the fact that our reduced consumption is, is hurting people elsewhere in the economy. Now, to the extent that we're in normal times, and some people are saving a bit more, readjusting their consumption bundles, some people are uh, coming into a new phase of life where they might be spending more, maybe borrowing uh, uh, to build a house or things along those lines, there's, of course, always this flux and some demand moving into the restaurant sector and some demand moving out to the restaurant sector. Uh, there could be some painful adjustments on a business-by-business basis, but it doesn't end up being a particular problem for the economy as a whole. And as you say, it's a necessary, uh, a necessary adjustment. Uh, it wouldn't be good for us if we were still producing as many horseshoes per capita as we did in the 1850 or 1900. Uh, so we have to make these kinds of adjustments in the economy over time. And that may be painful in some sectors, uh, uh, but overall it's a necessary shift. But from time to time, and we're in one of those right now in the U.S., we get into a situation where there is some systematic shifts in spending patterns. Uh, so what we're seeing now is a reduction in consumption more broadly, again, not because people have decided it would be in their interest to have a less materialistic lifestyle or to save more for the future, but because they're financially strapped, uh, the ways in which they were financing their spending for the past years are no longer available to them. And so we have a systematic reduction in consumption across the board and in consumption across sectors. So it's not just a matter of, of reallocating 
goods and services from one sector to another. It's a net drop in total demand and a significant one throughout the economy. And this is the problem that we're facing. And then the question is, well, what kinds of market adjustments can occur in that context to, uh, to, to solve that problem, to bring the resources that were employed in, say, providing consumer goods for people borrowing against their homes that are no longer doing that? Oh, I'm going to come back to the current situation in a second, but I want to stay for another minute or two with this uh, issue of uh, saving more, destroying income. Okay. Um, isn't it – But what I think that story is missing, at least uh, in the way you've told it so far, is that if we save more and there's a larger pool of money for future um, consumption, that's the source of innovation and risk-taking and investment – and isn't that going to produce, if it's wisely spent, uh, higher levels of income and consumption in the future if we save more today? If the premise of your statement were true, the answer would be yes. But the premise of your statement is that uh, when we save more, there's a larger pool of, uh, of money available, say, to, to lend out to the business sector. And that's the problem of the paradox of thrift. There really isn't. Uh, again, going back to the simple example, the family that doesn't go to the restaurant as much as they used to saves more. They see their flow into the banking system uh, rising, but the restaurant has less income, and so they're saving less. And under some uh, formal assumptions, those, uh, those two flows exactly offset each other. So there is the decision by a family not to go out to eat this week or this month or this year uh, and save the money they used to spend on going out to eat does not raise the pool of saving in the economy as a whole. Okay, now I think we're getting somewhere. So I, I think the uh, what I like about this, this story that we've that we've created is it really illustrates to me the challenge of uh, macroeconomics, which yes, is which is thinking clearly about a very complicated subject. And the reason it's complicated is that there's a lot of stuff going on at a point in time. And then we're also trying to deal with a lot of stuff going on over time, into the future. And we're inevitably, to make it a story that we can grasp with our puny little minds, speaking about myself, Steve, not you, (laughs) um, the the, the way we try to get a handle on it is by holding a bunch of stuff constant and changing one thing. That's right. And inevitably, I find that most macroeconomic errors in thinking, uh, again, not by you or or me, but but by uh, a lot of folks come in the news and elsewhere comes from uh, neglecting to allow something to change that has to change. Yes, I agree. So, so let me. What I think is wrong with the story I've told so far is this idea that there's an exogenous. Uh, outside the model change in savings, I just have an urge to save more. And, and the reason I mention that is that, of course, that's often caused by something else. And so if I'm going to have it caused by something else, I really might have to take that into account when I figure out the chain of effects that it's going to result in. So let, let me try the following story and see if, okay. if we agree or disagree. If we changed uh, tax policy which, of course, opens a Pandora's box of changes. But let's, and I'm I'm going to be very casual here, let's change tax policy in a way that uh, makes consumption less rewarding. That is, that it encourages uh, a shift away from consumption today toward consumption tomorrow. A lot of people argue, I think correctly, that the current tax system punishes savings and makes consumption relatively cheap. Okay. So if we move toward a tax system that treated consumption and savings more neutrally, that is, that didn't bias the incentives towards consumption and therefore raise them towards savings, wouldn't that yield uh, a higher savings rate today, perhaps a lower rate of output today as a result of that, but a higher output in the future as that savings turns into investment and and innovation. Okay, so the uh, first part of your statement I agree with. That is, if we have a change in tax policy that would encourage saving, say some kind of uh, new IRA uh, initiative or as many economists have recommended, a uh, consumption tax. That rather than an income tax. Rather than income tax, we tax consumption and, and let people deduct their saving. 
then if that tax policy had its intended consequence, which is to raise saving, uh, that would cause a short-term Keynesian problem. That would cause the same kind of problem we're talking about as our family deciding not to go to the restaurant as often. Uh, now, how do we get from that short-run result to the long-run result where there is more saving uh, in the economy as a whole? And, and that's, that has to do with uh, some very subtle issues that have been a, a core of the debate in macroeconomics, I think, for at least uh, since Keynes, so we're talking about 70 years plus, right. uh, about, about wage and price adjustment. Yeah. Uh, so, so we could go there if, yeah, if go that's ahead. helpful. Okay. Yeah, go ahead. So, so we have this problem, which is that higher saving, for whatever reason, in the short term destroys income. So individuals' decision to save more, whether it's a, from their own change in preferences or whether it's from an exogenous change in policy, uh, destroys income. And, and how, how, does the, how does the economy adjust to that problem? Well, uh, the standard story is something like this, that there are unemployed resources as the result of this falling demand, uh, in particular unemployed labor. So if there's excess supply in the labor market, workers who are looking for jobs who can't find them, then uh, that should put downward pressure on wages. And the quick response is, well, then that will bring more, uh, that will lead to higher employment. But remember that when there's downward pressure on wages, uh, if there's still insufficient demand, why should these workers uh, get jobs? If businesses are not going to hire workers to produce stuff that they can't sell. So somehow there has to be a channel through which lower wages will lead to higher demand in total. We have to fill that gap, whether it's with consumption or whether it's with, with business investment or something. We have to fill the gap in, in um, demand that was created by the higher saving. And uh, how, can that, you know, how can that happen? Well, the standard story is that while wages are lower, then some businesses will cut prices. They can get their labor cheaper, so they have lower prices. And then there may be a number of very subtle effects through which uh, lower prices will stimulate demand. And this process goes on until those resources are, uh, are fully employed. So the, the standard story would be something like this. In the short term, uh, we get, uh, when saving rises, we get a insufficient aggregate demand and unemployed resources. But unemployed resources lead to generalized fall in wages and prices throughout the economy that will continue until it's stimulated enough demand that we're back to uh, a demand that, that will we'll fully employ our resources again. So the, that period of adjustment uh, that it takes for wages and prices to fall adequately is the, is the movement between the short run and the long run. And this is a pretty conventional view uh, enshrined in, I think, mainstream textbooks now for, for decades. Uh, but it has some problems. Uh, should we go into those problems now? Well, let me ask maybe you. Maybe explore the, uh, the I would ask a more basic little. question, yeah. which, which is, I think, part of the source of my confusion over these issues. If um, I, I tend to think about quantities, and, okay. I, and I think about real resources. So we've got a pool of real resources out there, which include people, it includes output, it includes raw materials, it includes factories, all the stuff that, that our economy uses and produces. And if we decide to allocate <clears throat> some of that toward, a larger proportion of that toward consumption tomorrow rather than consumption today, isn't that simply going to keep aggregate demand unchanged? In other words, here, here's my claim. It's true the restaurant's <clears throat> going to have less business, and it, it's going to be cutting back, as it would in all kinds of other economic dynamic situations. But isn't the, the construction firm going to be expanding as there's more savings and there's more uh, in, as the pool of, of funds available to spend on uh, investment gets larger? Isn't there going to be – now, by the way, what I'm holding constant here, whether we can hold this constant or not, it's an interesting question. What I'm holding constant here – is the is the um, confidence and expectations people have about the future, which I see as the major source of our current problem today, is that those that confidence and trust and optimism isn't there, and people are sitting on their money. But put that to the side. Assume there's no anxiety about the future and, and what the rules of the game are going to be and what institutions are going to be in place. And instead, simply there's more money available, not more money, more resources available to create factories and and 
uh, creative uh, activity, designing new software or n- new all kinds of things. I want to want to get away just from manufacturing. But there's going to be a whole set of productive activities that are going to expand to t- that are not going to be people eating out, which is clearly consumption, but rather people are going to be investing. And th- isn't that part of aggregate demand? Well, uh, so your general point that what makes macroeconomics so difficult is is deciding what we can hold constant and what we can't hold constant really applies here. So if we're talking about the short run and the initial response to this higher saving, then a a very standard fallacy is to think that we can somehow hold income in the economy as a whole as constant. So the basic story that I hear you saying is this. Uh, So there's a, a certain amount of income in the economy, let's call it uh, $14 trillion just to be close to our current GDP. And people decide this, uh, and people, some of that's going to consumption and some of it's going to business investment and government and other activities. And now people decide to save more. Well, there's still $14 trillion out there. It's just a question of uh, it's being moved from uh, consumption to business investment. But that's the fallacy. When people save more, we cannot keep income constant. So an increase in saving necessarily destroys income. So there is no additional money in the sense of income flows over time uh, to invest when people save more. The only way to to make that happen, to kind of fill that gap, uh, is is to have some other process that will restore demand to the level it was before saving fell. That, that's just not automatic. So this, again, is the, is the paradox of thrift. You cannot raise saving and hold income constant. That's a logical fallacy. Well, whose income are we talking When you say income, you're talking about... Income in the economy is the whole. That is total income in the, in the economy. So, uh, the, the, again, our simple example, the family's income might not fall directly, but the restaurant's uh, income falls. Well, why so isn't the guy, so, but why isn't that offset by the person who is... Uh, selling the materials that are going to be used for the investment, because they're the steel, the steel maker for the new factory and the um, the software packages for the new uh, company that's designing new software packages, new software because, stuff. Because those those, uh, those activities were never funded uh, when the when the families decide to to eat out less uh, and therefore save more, so there, there some money's flowing into the banking system from them. Isn't the it, bank going to lend that? bank's not going to sit on that money. Okay, but, but, but let's, that's, that's true. The bank wouldn't sit on that money, but the restaurant owner is, have, has equivalently less income, and as a result, we'll have to, if, if that restaurant owner keeps his or her consumption the same, we'll have to draw down savings deposits by the same amount. So the net effect in the banking system is, is exactly offset. Right, there so, is no additional flow of funds into the banking system. So as a result of the, of the family's decision to, to eat out less, that is to consume less, there is no net increase right, so I don't in see, saving. So, so well, but there's no... Well, well, I'm not so sure. I'm a little bit confused about that. But <laughs> it's difficult. There's yes. no, there's no decrease in in total income then. In there is story. a decrease in total income. There must be. A, you might even sometimes I tell my students to think about the following thought experiment to try to get their heads around this, and I, I recognize it's very difficult conceptually. But think about what would happen if people every, people decide to save everything today. They just the, people just stop spending. It's silly, but just for a, as a thought experiment to think about the logic, income would fall to zero. If all Today. we had in the economy was consumption, there would be no income. Right. One person's spending is somebody else's income. So as soon as somebody spends less, <laughs> income, incomes must fall. And this, by the way, is not particularly radical. This is implicit in every mainstream textbook that talks about how, in the short run, we have uh, uh, possible problems in the economy when there's a decline in aggregate demand. Oh, but if we all – wait a minute. So if we all – Let's go through that thought, that hypothetical. Sure. We're, we're all going to stop uh, consuming, right? We're going to okay. take all of our right. income, and we're going to uh, try to invest it, right? Uh, well, we're going to save it. Okay. Save it. Well, we're not going to save it by putting it in the mattress. We, right. We're going to, although we could, obviously. That would be a different story. That's a whole I mean, yeah. that's a whole okay. different set of right. challenges of what prices, what happened to prices, et cetera. But if, if we try to invest it, uh, save it, and then either using the bank as the intermediary to invest it or us directly, um, uh, to me, that what, what I want to do is, again, maybe this is the wrong 
what I'm holding constant, but if we all decide to work more for tomorrow and less for today, which would be, say, a case where instead of taking my, uh, my fruit and eating it, I'm going to plant it, the seeds, and not eat the fruit, aren't we going to get a lot more tomorrow? Now, there's a very interesting uh, analogy you've just drawn because it points to another subtle but I think critical piece of Keynesian macroeconomics, which is the difference between a, a, a monetary economy and uh, an economy where all trade is in terms of goods and services yeah, I, directly I think, is really very important to this story. Yeah, I think one of the things we're struggling with here, and we talked about this a little bit, uh, uh, I, I think last week, depending on when this airs, uh, with, with Pete Betke, um, and that's the distinction between real and nominal. Uh, there, there's one so- part of economics that says all of monetary activity is just a veil. You've got to look at the real side. And the other says, well, actually you can't because once you introduce the monetary side, it starts to affect the real activity whether you want it to or not. Uh, yeah, that's right. And, and so it really the, the key here is that if we are in a monetary economy and working through the financial system, then in this thought experiment where everybody does, you know, basically we maybe we're poke, uh, moving along just, just fine with some people consuming each other's uh, production and paying, paying money back and forth to, to generate incomes in that process. Then everybody decides to save all of a sudden. And so uh, income just immediately falls to zero. There is no, there, there is no spending, so there can be no income. Uh, that's a monetary kind of system. Now, if we, we could think about an alternative system, which is uh, think about uh, uh, the Robinson Crusoe on an island, an uh, economist's favorite parable. Uh, so Robinson says, I've been e- eating these, uh, these bananas, and they're really good, but I'd like to actually have more bananas in the future, so I'm going to uh, not eat some bananas, let them go to seed and plant those seeds and grow more banana trees so I can have more production down the road. Then instantaneously, Robinson's decision to forego uh, some bananas that he'd like to eat today leads to investment that is creating seed that he can then turn into productive banana plants down the road. Without foregone consumption, there's no growth. Uh, and that's, and that, that's, that's, that's right. The, uh, the problem is making that happen in a monetary system. Uh, that when, let me just take another example, if I decide that I'd like to uh, consume less today, go out to eat less, uh, and the reason I'm going to do that is because I want to put my kids through college 10 years down the road, the market system sees that first uh, effect. They see that I'm not going out to eat as often, and we'll adjust to it. We'll adjust to it by providing less restaurant uh, food. But they will not see my decision to send my kids to college. In other words, the, the kind of reallocation we'd like to have happen here is that there's less money put into restaurant or less re- resources in your term, uh, using your terms, fewer resources put into restaurants and more resources put into providing a, a college education, training the faculty and building the classroom buildings, et cetera, uh, to, to educate my kids down the road. But the, well, Why isn't the bank going to lend the money to the college that anticipates? Because the, bank, because the bank never got the money. See, this is the key in the, this is the paradox of thrift. It's putting all these kinds of things together. So the bank, there is no net increase in saving initially because of my decision to save more because somebody else's income has fallen. Maybe my bank has got more money, but somebody else's bank, the okay. restaurant owner's bank, so, has less. So let me go back to my old, <laughs> to my original um, uh, asterisk version of this, and let's try it one more time, and then I think we should move on. Sure. Uh, if we have a change in public policy that lowers um, uh, the ratio of consumption to, to, to income, that is, that increases the amount of savings in the economy as a whole, such a change is possible, and surely, you, I think you would argue that such a change could lead to higher growth and therefore more consumption in the future. Only if there's some process that restores demand to the, to the, the level uh, that occurred with, before the increase in saving occurred. If you can find a way to reallocate resources away from consumption towards productive investment and maintain adequate aggregate demand, those two things together will lead to higher growth. The problem is that they, they both have to happen. And from the Keynesian perspective, keeping aggregate demand at an adequate level is not automatic. So, so 
most modern growth models, neoclassical growth theory, assumes there will be adequate aggregate demand. Uh, why? Because they assume that ultimately that wage Prices, and price adjustment yeah. process we talked about would, would work its way through, right. uh, so that over some horizon there'll be enough demand out there to fully employ our resources. So from that point of view, in the long run, higher saving will lead to more investment, which will lead to faster growth. But some of the more radical Keynesians like myself do not consider that process to be automatic, even over a longer horizon. Okay, so, so the issue then, the empirical issue would be, uh, to use the language of the, um, of the field, the stickiness of wages and prices. Is that the key question then? Well, in, in, the, in the mainstream thinking, yes. I think uh, the kind of middle-of-the-road Keynesian models, at least in the old days, the question was how quickly will wages and prices adjust so that the aggregate demand problem goes away. Uh, that's actually changed some over time. I think the, the middle of the road now, at least was until very recently, we can't really wait around for wages and prices to adjust. Plus, there are uh, risks of wage and price adjustment, particularly deflation, falling wages and prices, for the overall economy that could be counterproductive. So an enlightened monetary policy uh, should step in to, to fill the role of, of wage and price adjustment. Hence the idea of uh, the things you might have talked about in your past broadcast, the Taylor Rule or, yeah. or inflation targeting or, or particular structures for monetary policy so that uh, the, the Fed could help this process along. Now, of course, and now I'm uh, jumping into the current situation, the concern is monetary policy alone won't be enough. So we well, might need something else. Yeah, I'm almost ready to jump with you, but I, I think uh, – let me just ask you one more follow-up. Sure. Given the I – alluded, I alluded to this before – given the dynamism of, of the market economy in good times, not, not recessions, not, not depressions, but given that most of the time there's stuff changing all the time. People are changing their habits, their tastes. Things are not static. Uh, people suddenly get interested in, in eating out or, or not eating out. They get interested in exercise. They get interested in biking. They get interested in jogging. They get interested in music. People are constantly responding socially and culturally to all kinds of movements, and resources are constantly being allocated and reallocated to things that people like and don't like via those price and wage mechanisms. So where is what's the source of your skepticism that things don't uh, work well in that well, readjustment. Well, and actually, I, I would agree with much of what you're saying. In fact, I think that you've put your finger on the, the source of why the U.S. economy has done pretty well over the last 20, 25 years, which is there has been, uh, I might think of it as kind of an autonomous drive to more demand, and, it's, and it, we've also had a financial system that's facilitated it by, uh, by lending more. Uh, and so we actually have had, I think, strong demand growth, and that's worked. It, my concern is that, that but that's not automatic, that there are particular historical circumstances that, that sometimes can lead that process to, to falter, and I, and I think that's what we're facing right now. So my skepticism that wage and price adjustment can't solve the problem is really a, a fairly intuitive one, that there, while falling wages and prices can have some effects that stimulate demand, they can also have effects that hurt demand. In particular, if wages and prices fall, people who have debts that are in nominal terms will find it harder to, to pay those debts. Uh, so if you have a $100,000 mortgage and your wages are going down, it's going to be harder to pay your mortgage, and you might default, and, or you might uh, have to tighten your belt in other ways. Uh, so here's a, that's a, just one example why a generalized deflation could be a bad thing. And we know that deflation is not desirable, uh, that no, no one seems to think this, the solution to our problem now, or the solution to Japan's problem a few years ago, is just to get uh, wages and prices to fall even faster, to get deflation to, to pick up. And in fact, the Fed's trying to very hard to prevent deflation. I'm not sure that's a good idea, but let's move, let's move into the current situation. Sure. Um, let's foolishly, perhaps, uh, given my earlier comments of holding things constant, let's ignore how we got here. Okay. Although we might want to talk about that in a little bit. Uh, if... Um, if you could give advice to the uh, incoming administration for how to make sure the economy doesn't continue to falter, what's the argument for the the stimulus plans that uh, you heard talked about? 
Well, we do have to pay a little bit of attention to how we got here. So how how we got here, but but in just a very simple way, is that we're facing a problem of insufficient spending. we, don't have, we can talk later about why that happened, but uh, consumer spending is declining. Uh, residential construction is in a terrible slump. Uh, net exports, that is the, the, well, the goods that we sold abroad, was doing pretty well, but as the economy is slow in the rest of the world, that source of, uh, of demand is, uh, is, becomes more questionable. So there's really no way to turn the economy around unless we can, we can somehow... Get, uh, get demand back up again. Uh, we don't have enough demand in the economy to fully employ our resources. We need more demand. So how can that happen? The Federal Reserve has done what it can. Uh, one way to get more demand is for the Fed to cut interest rates, and lower interest rates encourage people to borrow, uh, businesses as well as consumers and households. They've been doing that. They've now pushed interest rates down to just about the lowest level they can. Um, the, Ben Bernanke has some creative ideas about maybe lowering long-term interest rates, so he'll probably be pursuing that uh, more or less independent of the administration. But many economists, myself included, now believe that the, the problems of demand are so severe that we cannot rely on any of the private sources of demand to rise on their own, uh, and that we cannot fully employ our resources without, in a sense, exogenously raising demand for goods and services throughout the economy, and the government can do that. Uh, Increased government spending is a source of demand. Uh, the government does not have to, uh, because effectively because they can print money uh, or or borrow uh, so far at good credit, uh, they can uh, they can do this, and that, that they need to do it, and it needs to be a pretty significant package. Okay, so, so the first maybe I should be clear that there's of course issues about what the government should do with that, uh, but the, the basic Keynesian point is less about whether we need more roads or more hospitals or more bridges or, or more of anything in particular, but that we need more demand in total. Well, where's that? I'm going to ask the standard question, a couple questions. The first one would be, where is that money going to come from? Well, um, let's not do the printing, because that, although I th- that's always a temptation, um, and it could be the ultimate way it gets done, but let's assume that it gets done the way it's been getting done for the last couple decades, which is it gets borrowed. So, so here we have to we have to reverse the the paradox of thrift, uh, which is that spending a reduction in spending uh, reduces income. So, an increase in spending will increase income. Uh, so that's the basic idea. So, in some sense, as the system moves towards an equilibrium, more spending will create the income to finance it. But is it going to be offset by less spending by somebody else? Uh, no, uh, it doesn't have to be. Uh, if the uh, I mean, there, there are various ways we can do it. Probably the, the printing money in some ways is the easiest one. Uh, so let, let's go there just because I think it's the, it'll be the most uh, clear thought experiment for your listeners. So suppose the government were just to print more green pieces of paper and employ construction workers. Well, those construction workers are going to think of that, that as income. They're certainly going to see it as income. Uh, those resources that were idle are brought into use. Uh, that's, that is the creation of income through higher demand, which is exactly the, uh, the opposite of the destruction of income through, uh, through well, higher like, savings. I like this example because it, to me, highlights a puzzle that's been bothering me now for a few years, which is uh, the distinction between Keynesian stimulus uh, and monetary stimulus. Um, so I'm going to think about three things here, okay. which I think are really the same, and I, I think we disagree on their impact. Um, the Case number one, the government um, issues a tax rebate. They call it a tax rebate, but it's basically just a, a check on the treasury. It's right. not related to whether you paid taxes or not. It's not related to how much taxes you paid. You just get a check in the mail. Maybe everybody gets it. Maybe not everybody. That doesn't matter. So you get a check in the mail. This is what we did approximately right. last spring. Right. Uh, I think it was $160 billion. Yeah, not all of that went to tax rebates, but we're on there. But basically, you're right. Right. So, so – we could have – the idea was to, quote, put money in people's hands, and sure. you can do that by printing the money, borrowing the money, or increasing government spending financed by borrowing or printing and um, going out and hiring workers to do some – let's make it a make-work project to make it even more dramatic. Right. Dig holes and fill them in. Sure. Why would that have any impact on real activity? Uh, well, and I don't uh, think it did, by the way. So, what's the evidence that that it sorry, does? Sorry, where where are we now? The tax rebate or the dig holes? Either one. Okay. Uh, it seems to me that 
well, my first point, which is a sort of um, you know history of thought point, is I'm not sure I see any difference between the government printing money and giving it to people, 160 billion worth, and saying, oh, I hope they spend it. That'll that'll increase demand and and um, and stimulate the economy, versus uh, hiring workers with printed money to go and dig holes and fill them in. The second is clearly considered um, uh, monetary, uh, excuse me, fiscal policy. The first is usually called fiscal policy, but it's it's kind of monetary, really. I'm not sure what the distinction is. And in all cases, I don't see it having any impact on the real economy. Well, certainly Keynesians believe that that uh, fiscal stimulus and monetary stimulus can both affect aggregate demand and have an impact uh, impact on output. So uh, I don't think there's a, a deep paradox here, but let's see if we can kind of sort out the ideas. So... Uh, let's talk about why the, the policy of uh, hiring one group to dig holes and another group to fill them back in again will, uh, will could actually be economic stimulus. Now, I want to qualify this because uh, this would be a, a standard trap for Keynesians to say, why are you proposing such craziness? No, Keynesians, certainly not myself, would say no, this is what we should do. No, <laughs> but, I understand. But I think We're it's trying helpful. to hold some stuff yeah. constant here. <laughs> but, but it's helpful to get the, the, to, to fix our ideas. So if people were unemployed, uh, and, and sitting idle, uh, having a hard time obviously paying their bills, even buying food to eat. And you now uh, hire one group of them to dig some holes, pay them in green pieces of paper, hire another group to um, fill those holes back in, pay them also in green pieces of paper. They can use these green pieces of paper to buy food and, uh, and other things they need, clothing, shelter. Uh, those workers are obviously going to feel better off. No doubt uh, about it. And, and so that will be better off. They will be better off. Those, yep. I, the problem was that before we had idle resources, those workers are now uh, are now brought into uh, employment. They're going to be better off. Moreover, if the grocers and the clothing manufacturers were also uh, in a situation where they had excess resources, then the spending of of these 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 workers who received the direct government stimulus. Would, would help the economy more broadly, and then that would lead to more food produced and more clothing produced, and so now we're producing real goods and services. So, I mean, that's the basic idea. And what Milton Friedman argued, I think, is that that effect would be temporary, that the net effect would be merely to raise prices, that there would be inflation. People would realize then that there hadn't been an increase in the demand for their services, and they would go back to the original equilibrium, and, and there'd be no improvement. That certainly is what Friedman would, would argue, and actually it was, it's a fairly mainstream perspective on these kinds of things. But recognize that at least, at the very least, even with Milton Friedman, that there is a temporary effect, and that temporary effect is stimulative. Now, Friedman had lots of concerns about the practical reality of making these policies work, but I don't think there was necessarily a deep debate about whether, in principle, this could be a, a source of stimulus for the economy. Well, I, think, I think the issue there was uh, a question of expectations, right? If people were aware, let's go to the even more classic case um, of the, the helicopter drop. Sure. So we're going to... Um, and the Fed's talked about this, in, you know, in different—not uh, literally, but the equivalent of it. If the Fed goes and prints money and spreads it around the economy, and if no one knows the Fed has done that, and suddenly so every a bunch of people, you wake up and you find there's a hundred dollar bill on your doorstep, and you think, "Wow, a hundred dollar bill! I'm richer than I was before. I'm going to spend it." Right. Um, and they go out and buy a TV, or they buy a, a go out for dinner with their family, et cetera. That's supposed to stimulate the economy. And, now, if they tried to do that every week, what Friedman argued is that eventually people would realize there's no increase in the real productivity of the economy, and this is just going to simply lead to inflation. The part that I have trouble with, besides that problem, is that there's a chance that people won't spend it. They'll just save it, right? Well, that, that, that's right. And, that, and, in fact, that does make a big distinction between these two policies. So, in some sense, the if you hire workers directly uh, to – Again, using our silly example to dig holes, some to dig holes, and the others to fill them back in again. You can have them. Uh, I mean, that is that, that is creating income. That is putting that is creating income in the way we measure it. I mean, there's lots of wasteful things that go on in the economy, private as well as public, and we count those things as as, as income uh, when it's in our standard accounting methods. If you simply give somebody money, whether it's uh, through a helicopter drop of green pieces of paper or, uh, more realistically, in recent terms, a, a tax rebate. That by itself is not stimulative. What it becomes stimulative if people spend that money, and they well might not. And I, there have been some uh, some quick estimates done of this, this recent tax rebate 
which suggests that maybe 20 to 50 percent was was spent. Um, so much less than um, m- much less than the total that was put out there. So I think this is part of the reason why people who might have been in favor of tax rebates or other kinds of monetary measures as stimulus in normal times say that the problem is just too, too big now. We, we can't afford that. We need direct government spending on goods and services, which is a direct injection into the economy. It doesn't rely on people spending um, what they might see as a, a windfall from the government. Okay. And again, I think the um, what, what I would worry about there is, is the uh, inflationary impact of, of that. And I think that impact's going to be there regardless of whether it's green pieces of paper or hiring workers. Well, it will be. It, it will be if, in fact, it works. I mean, this is, I think, another bit of a paradox, which is there's. And here, here's where I might differ to some extent from Friedman, although Friedman had had very subtle kind of uh, subtle ways of reasoning. So I, I, I wouldn't want to put any words in his mouth. But a simple version of monetarism, not necessarily Milton Friedman's views. Uh, would suggest that there's basically an automatic link between the supply of money in the economy and the price level. So if money rises, then inflation must rise. I don't think uh, I don't see that as such an automatic link. I think it, it works through demand, basically. So uh, a rise in, in the supply of money uh, can lead to higher demand. Higher demand will, in some circumstances, lead to higher prices. But higher demand can also lead to higher real production. Uh, and, and why is that? Because if there are unutilized resources in the economy, uh, it may well be that the restaurant will react to the higher demand by, uh, by uh, hiring more workers and producing more meals than by raising its prices. So the monetary stimulus, fiscal stimulus, which, wherever it comes from, need not be inflationary in a world of unemployed resources. Uh, Friedman and, and really most mainstream macroeconomists, again, I differ a little bit with this view, uh, would would suggest that, well, in the long run, we will fully employ our resources. So in the long run, whether it's fiscal or monetary stimulus, that would be inflationary unless it's, unless it's offset once the economy recovers. Okay, well, let's move on to, the I think, the tougher question now, which is there are uh, differing perspectives on uh, the ability of the government to stimulate the economy. Uh, you're more optimistic than I am. Uh, and I think you're more optimistic than 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 some, but it's a mainstream oh, view. No. But not not many. I mean, there there are a lot of people out there who are arguing now that we need to stimulate the economy. Yeah, it, actually, there has been a remarkable shift of, through increase, of not only to some stimulus but to massive stimulus. To massive stimulus. Um, now, I don't want to suggest that um, that that stimulus is going to be spent on digging holes and filling them back in. I right. think there's going to be a lot of quote productive things produced. What I'm more worried about. Is two things that many of those uh, those productive things are going to be still less productive than alternatives that might have been produced by private sector activity, and I don't. The thing I worry about more, uh, besides this worry that it doesn't stimulate at all because of offsetting effects either of inflation or or uh, lost uh, investment, what I worry about more is the um, what I see. And we haven't mentioned this. The investment climate, which is people are fearful of the future. Right. Part of the reason they're fearful is they just think the economy is going to go down. Part of the reason they're fearful of the future is that they're not sure what the rules of the game are going to be. They're not sure who's going to get bailed out and who's not going to get bailed out. And so many risk takers, almost all right now, are sitting on the sidelines saying, I'm going to wait and see till stuff settles down. And that attitude is pervasive. It's not just being held by an attitude by banks, it's it's an attitude that most of us have individually who are saying, gee, I might not have a job in six months. I might not have a job in a year. Uh, I'm not going to buy the new TV. I'm not going to buy the fancy um, gadget. I'm not going to buy the new car. I'm going to get by with what I have. And as a result, people are very fearful. And as uh, even worse than that, they're cutting back to make sure that they're in a position if things get worse to weather, it, weather the storm. So I'm not... I don't see any evidence that this kind of stimulus package is going to change, and if anything, I think it's going to make it worse because of rent-seeking. I don't see any evidence that this stimulus package is going to change people's expectations. So talk generally then about the evidence that we have. Um, Mine's a surmise. 
What empirical evidence do we have that this kind of stimulus that many, many people are advocating, massive increases in government spending and in the, gov- the government deficit, will have a stimulative effect on the economy as a whole? Well, that's a good question, and you've said a lot of interesting things. I might just mention as a sidelight before I answer your question directly that uh, you made a very good Keynesian argument in some sense about what uh, what Keynes called animal spirits, uh, that that uh, weak expectations and fear about the future can lead to uh, a depressed economy uh, is, is indeed a very Keynesian kind of argument. But let's go back to the more direct question and say, well, what evidence is there that government stimulus in particular can help uh, turn economic circumstances around? Uh, the example that probably most people would point to most immediately is World War II. There's some debate about whether World War II uh, pulled the economy out of the Depression. I've you know, looked at some of that literature, and, and I would basically argue that, yes, that the military production at the end of the 30s and then ultimately World War II uh, was key to getting the economy out of the Depression. Uh, but I think there, there can be very little debate about the fact that World War II itself stimulated production. I mean, the economy grew at remarkable rates. Unemployment fell to virtually zero. Uh, lots of incomes were created. Uh, there was a huge government deficit. Uh, so uh, the economy was stimulated. It's less of an issue about whether it was, uh, this was the reason we got out of the Depression. The economy was stimulated during that period. In fact, this general idea of wartime economy, World War II is the most, is the most dramatic example that I'm aware of in recent times. But if, but if we think about Korea or Vietnam, also relatively large uh, spending periods of time. These were also periods of uh, of fairly quick economic growth and low unemployment. Let's talk about the Vietnam era in particular, when uh, there was worry about the economy overheating and there was worry about inflation uh, created in the late 1960s because there was so much government stimulus. We were probably getting to the point where we were fully employing, maybe overemploying our resources, and there was a worry about inflation. Another example I might give is the Reagan tax cuts of the early 1980s. So the economy was in a a pretty deep problem at that point in time. Uh, The highest unemployment rate since the Depression, uh, 10.8% in late 1982. And uh, during this period of time, there were these massive tax cuts, in this case, permanent tax cuts, that people would not expect to be uh, rescinded, not just a one-time rebate. Now, there's there's debate about about the effects, but in some recent research I've done, uh, interestingly, this is the beginning of a, of a consumption boom period. Uh, the idea of the tax cuts was actually to stimulate saving, among other things. But in practice, uh, it seemed like a lot of it went into higher consumption. And uh, the economy did reasonably well, not just in the 80s, but with these relatively low tax rates uh, through the 90s and, and even much of this decade. Uh, so the, the problem with these things is they're all rather anecdotal. There is more. Uh, there are alternative stories to be told uh, that, as economists, we just don't have much of a database. Uh, we can say, well, we have hundreds of quarterly observations on GDP and other kinds of variables um, over the past uh, 50 or 60 years, but as a practical matter, we just have a, a few historical periods in which these kinds of things were, uh, were attempted. We can't rerun those histories with different policies and see what would be different. So it really is very difficult to, um, to have hard evidence uh, for any of these perspectives. Yeah, just as a footnote, um, regular listeners will remember that our podcast with Robert Higgs argued that the wartime prosperity was an illusion, that measurement of economic activity is very difficult during during the war due to wage and price controls, and that uh, while the war was good for reducing unemployment by conscripting people and and by encouraging military production – that it didn't stimulate the economy. It still stimulated the military side. And I, I understand that's a controversial view. Yeah, P- 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 Professor Higgs is on the other side of that issue. Yeah, and he's made a, a coherent argument. Right. And, and, I, and while I disagree with that particular perspective, uh, I would say it's indicative of the broader point, which is it, it's going to be very difficult to say, let's look at the evidence and decide which view is right. Okay. Uh, we'll look at the evidence and we'll have people debate about what the evidence means. So let me ask you a hard question. Okay. Um, We'll close with this as a philosophical question. Um, As you say, and I think it's a profoundly important point, it's very difficult to measure these effects in a systematic way because it's a complex system. Many things are changing at one time. Uh, We can't rerun the experiment with an alternative stimulus or a lack of stimulus. So it's very difficult to know. Uh, which of these um, impacts are, are real versus illusory. It's very tempting to construct ex post narratives um, 
about the Great Depression or the current financial mess or the Vietnam or Reagan eras. And as you say, that when you say they were anecdotal, you were trying to be modest. It, it's it's true they're anecdotal. They're a little more than anecdotal. Yeah. You've got to try to... I guess I should say they were historically specific. They were yeah, really kind of one observation. That's right. Yeah. And I think that's the biggest challenge that macroeconomics faces. It's is that often we're trying to explain one observation, and then we're, another observation comes along with its own unique circumstances. So as a, as a professor and as a professional economist, what are your thoughts on how a, uh, a person should confront this challenge? That is, you were trained a certain way, I was trained a certain way. You know, you, uh, I think you went... Your PhD work was at Stanford, correct? Yeah. And so I went to Chicago, and I was—I drank a certain kind of milk there, and you drank a different kind yeah, of milk no from, from your uh, your intellectual mothers there. And um, how do we keep our intellectual honesty in a world where a lot of perhaps what we believe in is—I don't know what you want to call—I don't want to call it bias. I don't think it's a bias, but how easy it is to confirm our, our priors with with the empirical stories we're able to tell. Well, that's an excellent question, and you're right. It's a very difficult one, so let me just share some of my my views on that. It's something I've thought about a lot over my career. Uh, I, I think part of it is to, to be serious about the evidence. Uh, so even though I recognize the difficulty of validating um, one's own theory or, or, or any theory with, uh, with hard empirical evidence, we, we just don't have the, the luxury uh, that many of the natural sciences have of doing controlled experiments or having very, very detailed observations on an unchanging universe uh, to, to, to draw evidence for our theories. But we still should try. Uh, that might mean looking just at just a piece of the theory, not the theory as a whole necessarily, and trying to, to work that, do, do what you can in some respects. I do think it suggests, uh, especially in macroeconomics, an openness to a more historical style of analysis. Uh, economics has tended to focus on formal statistical methods that require lots of data. Uh, maybe we need to look more at, at case studies of economic history. Professor Higgs is a good example of that. Uh, the, and try to get our evidence there. In some ways, I think we have to be humble. Uh, that is, we're not going to be able to find um, um, the, the critical experiments that will necessarily uh, distinguish between these theories. And, and so we have to be aggressive and work hard to get what evidence we can. Uh, I also think that we need to have, uh, we need to be guided by theory in, in some respects. Uh, but, the, but we need to be open-minded about those theories. I think too many of us uh, come into these problems with a uh, uh, somewhat closed-minded uh, view about how the world works and uh, just are not interested in hearing uh, the alternative stories. And I think that's, that's difficult. While I have come to the conclusion over uh, a quarter century plus of uh, research and teaching on these areas that the Keynesian perspective uh, is the best way to understand uh, the macroeconomy, I've also tried to be very open to the alternatives and understand very clearly the alternatives. I don't think that's something that's necessarily um, broadly true in our profession, uh, where, as you say, we all drink a particular kind of milk and... and, and Kool-Aid maybe is the right word. <laughs> and, we call, I said milk, but it might be Kool-Aid. Yeah, and, and stick with it. Uh, so uh, I think we have to be a bit humble about this, and, and I could maybe just make a quick a comment with respect to what's going on right now. I mean, a lot of people are critical. Uh, I, I am too somewhat of uh, the somewhat haphazard way that economic policy is being done right now, but I have a certain sympathy for it. Uh, people like uh, Hank Paulson and Ben Bernanke and uh, President-elect Obama and Paul Volcker and Larry Summers and Austin Goolsbee and the, and the economic leaders that, uh, that we have and are about to have uh, have a very, very difficult job. They, ha- they, are, they can't afford to uh, debate about... Uh, uh, is the world Keynesian or non-Keynesian? Uh, they have to come up with policies that, that uh, affect people's lives now, and uh, so we have to expect a certain amount of uh, starting and stopping. And, and uh, I mean, in the broad sense, your, your concern about expectations is well taken. Uh, that people uh, may have uh, not a whole lot of confidence in their economic leaders when this is happening, but uh, we have to recognize that this is the, the state of knowledge in our profession. That's yeah, very, 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 very well said. Um, and I, I, I have to say that. My own uh, uh, mood has tended toward humility in the last uh, six to 18 months as we've seen things happen. Uh, I think we're, as a profession, uh, in a very strange situation where we really are struggling, I think, to understand this as well as, as we thought we could. 
And um, although we can't run natural experiments, we're about to get as close to it as you can come. If, if we have a trillion-dollar stimulus package, which some people are talking about, we are going to learn something, I think. We, we may debate it and argue about what it actually means, but I have a feeling we're, uh, we're about to embark on something that will be, uh, at a minimum, very educational. I, I hope... Um, I hope it's it's more than that, but, but we'll find out. Well, on that point, we can certainly agree. My guest today has been Steve Fazari, professor of economics at Washington University in St. Louis. Steve, thanks for being part of EconTalk. It's been my pleasure, Russ. This is EconTalk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more EconTalk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.